Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today, even as the news breaks from the United Nations that the world is likely to pass a dangerous threshold within the next 10 years as a result of climate change. The implications of this are far and wide and reach every corner of the planet that we all inhabit. Indeed, let us go now to a warning given to us, a clip of Greta Thunberg as she is chiding world leaders for dragging their feet on climate change. Let's go to that clip now. This is not about some expensive, politically correct, green act of bunny-hugging or blah, 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 build back better, blah, 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 green economy, blah, 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 net zero by 2050, blah, blah, blah. Net zero by 2050, blah, 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 net zero, blah, 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 climate neutral. Blah, blah, blah. This is all we hear from our so-called leaders. Words, words that sound great, but so far has led to no action. Our hopes and dreams drown in their empty words and promises. Of course, we need constructive dialogue, but they've now had 30 years of blah, 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 and where has that led us? But, of course, we can still turn this around. It is entirely possible. It will take drastic annual emission cuts unlike anything the world has ever seen. And as we don't have the technological solutions that alone can deliver anything close to that, that means we will have to change. We can no longer let the people in power decide what is politically possible or not. We can no longer let the people in power decide what hope is. Hope is not passive. Hope is not blah, blah, blah. Hope is telling the truth. Hope is taking action. And hope always comes from the people. Righty. And the voice of youth climate justice activist Greta Thunberg. She has really uh, started a worldwide movement among young people. Now, on Sojourner Truth, we have covered campaigns to save forests, to stop GE trees, opposing the tar sands and the dangers of oil pipelines, the threat to small islands and even major cities in the United States uh, caused by the rise in sea and ocean levels. We've covered melting glaciers and more. But now we are doing more coverage on threats to the desert. Most of the media coverage on deserts focus on the threat of desert encroachment on countries like Mortania, where desert encroachment now threatens ancient libraries and manuscripts. We've also heard a lot about stopping the expansion of the Sahara deserts. But do deserts play a positive role in the Earth's ecological balance? What are the threats to the desert? And why should any of us care? Our focus today is on the Mojave and California deserts, including the threat of increasing growth and development and its impact on the delicate desert environment. 
Our guests are biologist Pat, Pat Flanagan and Eric Hamburg, who lives in an unincorporated rural desert community in California's high desert. Eric is part of what can be dubbed a David and Goliath battle, a small community up against deep pocket developers. Now let's go to our news headline. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Christina Onestead. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky is visiting hard-hit Bakhmut region, where he says Russia's launched 187 missiles in a 24-hour time span. Strikes also hit Zaporizhia, including an apartment building, and in Kiev, killing at least four in a student dormitory. The massive attack comes just hours after Japan's Prime Minister visited with Zelensky in Kiev, then met with Poland's leadership, pledging support for Poland as it plans to supply fighter jets to Ukraine. That visit came as China's President Xi Jinping met with Russia's President Vladimir Putin in Moscow and discussed a peace plan. Xi has since left the country. Meanwhile, Zelensky posted on Telegram a video footage that captures the moment a missile hit the nine-story residential block by a busy road. A Russian official claims the building was hit by a Ukrainian air defense missile. The United Nations is holding a major water conference today, the first in some 45 years. A report released ahead of the gathering warns humanities on the brink of water scarcity, finding 26% of the world's population does not have access to safe drinking water, and 46% lacks assets to basic sanitation. Richard Conner is editor-in-chief of the UN World Development Report 2023. 10% of the global population currently lives in areas that are high or critical water stress. Um, in our report, we said that up to 3.5 billion people live under conditions of water stress at least one month a year. The report paints a stark picture of the huge gap that needs to be filled to meet UN goals to ensure all people have access to clean water and sanitation by 2030. Connor says the estimated cost of meeting the goals is between $600 billion and $1 trillion each year. In the U.S., the Senate has taken another step towards repealing two measures that give open-ended approval for military action in Iraq. That push comes as the U.S. marks the 20th anniversary of the disastrous Iraq War, which was based on lies from the George W. Bush administration. Senators voted 67 to 28 to begin debate on a bill to repeal the 2002 measure that greenlit the invasion of Iraq in 2003. Democratic Senate Foreign Relations Committee Chair Robert Menendez pointed to what he said were nearly 5,000 U.S. troops and hundreds of thousands of Iraqis who died in the war. Menendez says the Iraq war undermined U.S. credibility and made a mockery of the country's support for democracy. Repealing these authorizations is an important step forward. It removes an irritant in the bilateral relationship and it cements our partnership. And it helps Iraq move forward, independent and more integrated with its Arab neighbors. Let's mark the 20th anniversary this week of the Iraq war by paying tribute to the Iraqis who suffered, to the Americans we lost, and to the American families that provided unconditional support for those who served every day for the last 20 years. 
The Center for Constitutional Rights has renewed its call for reparations for Iraq, a call that has not gained any traction since it was first proposed 10 years ago. House Republican Speaker Kevin McCarthy said for the first time Monday he would back repeal of the Iraq War authorizations. In the past, he had opposed them. President Joe Biden announced he's establishing a national monument in Nevada and Texas and creating a marine sanctuary in U.S. waters near the Pacific Remote Islands southwest of Hawaii. The president called the conservation measures part of an effort to protect the heart and soul of our national pride. He designated a site in Nevada which includes Spirit Mountain, also known as Aviquaame. 500,000 acres. Breathtaking. Breathtaking deserts, valleys, mountain ranges, rich in biodiversity, sacred lands that are central to the creation story of so many tribes who have been here since time immemorial. Look, you know, it's a place of reverence, it's a place of spirituality, and it's a place of healing. And now it will be recognized for the significance it holds and be preserved forever, forever. <laughs> The Fort Mojave tribe believes the lands are where their first members emerged. In the Pacific, Biden directed the Commerce Department to initiate a national marine sanctuary designation to protect 777,000 square miles around the Pacific remote islands. Early voting takes place in Wisconsin over the state Supreme Court that will determine the majority control ahead of an anticipated abortion rights case. The liberal candidate isn't backing down from her support for abortion rights or her belief the state's Republican-drawn legislative maps are unfair. During a debate Tuesday ahead of early voting, Janet Protasowski called her GOP-backed opponent Dan Kelly a threat to our democracy because he consulted with Republicans about their plan to seat fake electors to support Donald Trump after he lost Wisconsin in 2020. I am running against probably one of the most extreme partisan characters in the history of this state. This is somebody who advised the Republican Party about the fake elector scheme. This is somebody who was running his former office out of the Republican Party headquarters. This is somebody who's given legal advice to the Republican Party over and over and over. But the real cherry on the top is that fake elector scheme. He is a true threat to our democracy. I'm Christina Onestead reporting for Pacifica Radio. Those were our news headlines. This is Margaret Prescott hosts of Sojourner Truth, and today we have a, a special in-depth show where we are going to focus on the deserts, specifically the deserts in California, the Mojave and California deserts. What role do they play in the ecological balance of our planet? What are the threats against them? And I'd like now to welcome our guests, I'd like to welcome back to Sojourner Truth, Pat Flanagan, who is a naturalist educator based in 29 Palms, California. She developed the first place, first based desert ecology geology curriculum in Southern California, the Salton Basin Living Laboratory Field Trip Program, as well as an ecosystem map graphic organizer. In her current position as desert naturalist at the 29 Palms in Oasis of Mata, she educates an international audience on the local history going back 9,000 years and desert ecology. 
Pat Flanagan, welcome back. Thank you. Delighted to be back. I'd also like to welcome uh, Eric Hamburg. Uh, Eric uh, lives, as I said in the introduction to the show, in an unincorporated rural community, small rural community in the upper desert. It's an unincorporated area in San Bernardino County called Wonder Valley. Uh, he has owned a home there for 22 years. He's lived in the desert full-time for eight years. Eric Hamburg, welcome. Thanks, Margaret. I'd also mention that I've visited this area, particularly Joshua Tree National Park, for probably going on 50 years. So uh, I've uh, been coming out here and uh, enjoying it for most of my life. All righty, and we'll find out a bit more into that personal story and, and, and why you're living in the desert. Uh, but Pat Flanagan, we're going to start with you and discuss some of the uh, broader uh, context. Uh, there, some in our audience will know about the Mojave and California deserts, but others might not. But Pat, the context, the Washington Post headline, world is on brink of catastrophic warming. Uh, they're saying that within 10 years, we don't have a lot of time. And uh, so that's the bad news. Some good news being reported uh, on March 21st is that President Biden is designating on Tuesday, March 21st, two new national monuments in the Southwest. Okay, half a million acres in Nevada, very important to uh, Native American nations there and some land in Texas, in Nevada, in Texas. So that's good news. That's some of the good news, Pat. So within that context, a lot of people, as I said, you know, we hear about protecting the forests and the oceans, et cetera. But a lot of people don't know much about the desert or its importance and that it's not only, you know, just a threat <laughs> to engulfing whole countries like in or cities like in Mar Mauritania. Pat, tell us a bit about the role specifically in California that the deserts play here. Well, I think first of all, you have to erase from your mind what you learned when you were in grammar school about the Saudi Arabian desert and you picture nothing but rolling miles of sand dunes with nothing on them. The three deserts, the main deserts in California, which we have the Colorado Sonoran Desert to the south, which is considered the hot desert. Then you have the Mojave Desert, which is um, not, it's a higher desert. And then you have the Great Basin Desert, which is the cold desert. So you have this diversity of deserts with climates and elevation. You also have, amazingly, over 100 mountain ranges within the desert. You do have some uh, sand dunes, that's true. But when you look at the deserts of California, you're looking at 28% of the state. And in this state of California, California is a biodiversity hotspot of the world. And when we talk about saving us in climate change, we're not just talking about cutting down our emissions of CO2. We're also about saving biodiversity so that we're not sort of an empty planet. Okay, so you look at the deserts of California, they're 28% of the state. They have 38% of the desert plants. 
excuse me, of the native plants of California. That's kind of shocking, wouldn't you think? Really? There's nothing, yeah, there's like nothing out here, right? Uh, yeah, there's a lot out here. There's also a large number of animals that go from the smallest, from insects up to, uh, you've got some mountain lions and some bighorn sheep. But when I was uh, doing this research initially on and putting together a flyer on you know, the numbers of things that live in the desert, I thought, insects? How am I ever going to find out how many insects are in California? So I was just going to have a picture of me throwing my hands up in the air. Then I went to um, a lecture by Dr. Orr, who was doing his graduate work in Joshua Tree National Park, and he's now in China studying native pollinating bees. Native pollinating bees are not honeybees. They actually come from another place. And native pollinating bees do not hive together. They don't do any kind of bee combs and uh, they don't make much in the way of honey. So uh, what are these bees? When he was studying them, that was when I found out first, and this is where I threw my arms up in the air, that there were 600 species of native pollinating bees. What? I mean, really? And then recently I heard another update on that and there are actually 650 species of native pollinating bees. If you can't get your mind around that, you're just like me, but it also makes me so respectful of the number of plant species that are here and the complexity of the relationships between the bees and the plants. So I think that's one of the things we need to understand. And then on top of that for biodiversity, when the sun is shining, the ground is moist, plants are photosynthesizing, they're drawing in carbon dioxide. Okay, then we look at forests and you've got that carbon dioxide can be stored in the trunks of trees. But that's not the way it works in the desert. First, it's stored in this material that's connecting all the plants out there called mycorrhizal fungi. And then ultimately, over long periods of time, that carbon dioxide is actually goes into a rock called caliche. And I don't know of any other rock that starts out from a biological process and goes into a rock. But today, if you're doing gardening in the desert, and you're trying to plant something with deep roots, you're gonna end up you know, with your shovel hitting this hard thing. And that hard thing is caliche. When that's broken up, that uh, is releasing the, the carbon dioxide that's in there. And that carbon dioxide goes all the way back to the ice ages. So today we're trying to convince the state of California who doesn't quite get it yet, that 10%, and this is based on research, peer reviewed research, about 10% of the stored carbon in California is in the deserts of California. And when you go to native areas where the plants are intact and you disturb it, you scrape them off and you dig down and you put in these utility scale solar projects, you're releasing Pleistocene ice age carbon. So we got a lot of considered things to consider out here. Yeah, and, and Pat, that's just amazing. I'm sure a lot of our listeners uh, don't know that. And the you know even the point about carbon, not to mention the biodiversity, the uh, mycorrhizal fungi, uh, interesting story in and of itself. I, I wanna ask you a little bit more about that. 
all of that also part of the whole of the biodiversity of the planet. So it's not like uh, places like the California desert or preservation of the California desert is not an integral part to stopping global warming. Your thoughts, Pat? Well, it's what's interesting to me to add on to what I've just said is that we're looking to preserve the forests, which are burning down. If you can preserve all of the carbon, that 10% of the carbon in the desert by doing nothing. You just don't disturb it. And actually the California desert is a very large, basically undisturbed system. So get your arms around that. You don't have to do a lot of work. You just have to keep it the way it is. And uh, that means you have to convince others that they have to do that. And that's why we fight so hard to make sure that inappropriate developments, et cetera, don't go in the desert. Right, and we'll be hearing a bit more about that from Eric as well. Um, Just Pat, staying with you for a moment though. Uh, you talk about the 10% of carbon uh, stored in the in the desert. That's huge. And you just leave the desert alone. You don't scrape the crust. You don't start digging it up. You also talked about the storing that happens in, in rocks. Now, some of our listeners may have heard, though, about the campaign to um, get the Joshua tree uh, protected. And there's some news on that front. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has declined. And I'm mentioning the Joshua Tree because that's part of the terrain, right, in the California deserts that you mentioned. Um, yes. That they basically um, left the fate of the protection measures um, to state legislation in, in California. So that was a bit of a disappointment for people who have been working to protect the the Joshua tree, the wild earth guardians, they said, quote unquote, that the fish and wildlife, U.S. fish and wildlife are ignoring science and the law and criticize that decision. And then on the other hand, you have California Governor Newsom uh, unveiling a bill to protect the Joshua tree, which is uh, threatened. Um, before we talk, because I also want to talk about the creosote, okay, because in the area where Eric resides, there are no Joshua trees, but there are a lot of creosote. But any thoughts on this fight around the Joshua tree, Pat? Well, the, in California, the Joshua tree is being, Center for Biological Diversity has introduced the bill, and to save the Joshua tree, literally, it would be the first plant to be protected because it will disappear because of climate change. And that is true. As the climate is changing and the and is warming up, you can watch at the lower elevations that the Joshua trees are not doing so well. And yet Joshua trees, they go, well, okay, let's just move them to higher ground. We'll try that one out. You can move them to higher ground if they survive with your replanting. But then they have a pollinator that is totally particular to the Joshua tree. And um, you have to bring that along too. And so it's, uh, and that's by the way, the only way the Joshua tree is gonna reproduce is with this particular pollinator. And I don't know if we have time to go into the mechanism there, but in any event, it's not easy. And you have to have forward thinking. You have to get Greta down here to beat on us. 
Right. Absolutely. And so, Pat, now for a lot of the California desert, there are lots of Joshua trees in the California desert, including, by the way, in the area that um, President Biden has now created the two national monuments uh, that I mentioned in the uh, Southwest, including in the Spirit Mountain uh, area, which is known, the indigenous name for that is, I think, Avikwama. Um, that is, uh, you know, sacred to indigenous people. And there are lots of uh, Joshua trees in that area. But where Eric lives, and we're going to bring Eric into this conversation um, after our station break here, there aren't Joshua trees, but there are a lot of creosote, the creosote bush. Tell us about that, because I think, I happen to love the creosote, and I happen to think they don't get the respect that they deserve, okay? Tell us about the creosote and also the connection with this underground system um, that you mentioned. So oh, with just one final, one final thing I should have mentioned, the Joshua tree, wherever you find it, it is, um, it's where you have the Mojave Desert. Joshua trees are not in the Sonoran or the Great Basin Desert. That is okay. only in the Mojave. Okay, uh, the creosote, one of my favorite plant, maybe my favorite plant, which actually didn't evolve in North America. It evolved in Argentina. And but according to my reading, it had to hopscot its way up, took about a million years before it got here. And then it hung out in the dry, hotter parts of on the base of mountain ranges while the climate was changing from the ice ages and the deserts were forming. Having got that far, and as soon as our deserts of the Southwest were there and formed, the Joshua trees started spreading and it, excuse me, the creosotes started spreading. And today it is the commonest plant in the deserts of the Southwest. And there's some genetic differences a bit between those in the most Eastern part um, coming on up into California, but they're not huge. And they're, they're all the same species. So you have that, and then you have amazing things to consider. Um, if you go into Lucerne Valley up on a hillside or alluvial fan area, there's a clone, which means that that's a vegetatively reproducing plant that grows out from its original mother plant. And that clone, which has a, an empty hole in it that's about 65 feet in diameter, has been aged to be over 11,000 years old. Wow. Which means that when that seed landed there and germinated, that it the reproduction is still going on, although it's all vegetative. It, it, no, you have individual plants that have both male and female um, as we're used to from plant crossing, but this one's just um, the female. And in fact, cloning is a pretty uh, good device. Once you get your foot down on the ground, don't leave it up. So, and then um, there's a lot, you, it's one of two plants in the desert, the other being jojoba that are evergreen. So no matter what time of the year, you'll have your leaves on the creosote. You give it a smell, and uh, some people go, oh, some people go, wow. The Indians and those of us who live here will go, the desert smells like rain. And that creosote smell, it's not because it creosote, which is a petrochemical, comes from there. No, it's because it smells like that. 
in Mexico, where it's also dominant in their deserts, um, it is called gobernador, which is the governing plant of the area. So um, if you're ever out to the 29 Palms Inn, come by and I'll show you some of the things that happen when you're looking closely at the creosote. Yeah, and um, Pat, the other thing too that is, why is the, I mean, what role does the creosote play in desert preservation to the ecology of, of the desert? Uh, you know, what's the important role of the creosote here, given the bigger context that we're talking about, you know, threats of the desert, threats of the planet, threats to, you know, the ecology as a whole, Pat? So um, the creosote is the commonest plant in the desert. And if you look underground, you'll find that they are all connected with this mycorrhizal fungi. You know, it's amazing. You drive down the road and you see creosote, you know, thousands and thousands, millions of them, as far as you can see. And there's no creosote that goes, hey, I'm going to get more water than you and be bigger. They're all the same size. They're all connected. And they're all sequestering carbon in that mycorrhizal fungi. And then that's that's more to the immediate. And then that slowly, that's transferred into pieces of caliche and all of rock and then ultimately gets into the layered caliche. So this is, uh, it is holding the desert together and the desert, I guess, is holding it together. Talk about being uh, all interconnected there. So the idea of, you know, this underground system where they're all um, connected uh, with each other. And we're learning that about forests, by the way, and the yes. trees and the and the mother tree, et cetera. So a lot of that data is beginning to surface, but when it comes to the to the desert, the creosote playing a very important role. Uh, Pat and Eric, um, in fact, before we do station break, uh, Eric, uh, you live in an area surrounded by by creosote and earlier you were telling me that in your area you had some rain last night what happens in the desert um when it rains in an area where there are tons of creosote like where you are eric well the desert uh, by definition is arid but uh wonder valley where i live in particular gets very little rain that comes in from uh, storm systems from the west uh, off the Pacific coast. But last night I was awoken at 3 a.m. by uh, the sound of rain on my roof. And I, since it's so unusual, I got up and I opened the door and uh, went outside and smelled the aroma of the creosote, which is always special and welcome. Absolutely. And a way you can tell when there's moisture in the desert and it's it's just uh, fantastic um, there. And Eric, um, we just have a couple of minutes before we go to station break. But the other, I mean, we talk about what's on the ground, right, in terms of the, the value of, of the desert. But you were an amateur astronomer. <laughs> uh, tell yeah. us about that and your relationship then to the desert and what you are actively trying to preserve in the desert, that it has to do with the night sky, Eric. Well, I've always been um, a fan of the sky in general and clouds. And I am particularly fond of looking up 
at the night sky and seeing millions of stars. Uh, but uh, I've also had an interest in uh, going a little bit further with that and uh, using a telescope. Uh, I was fortunate to get a pretty large telescope for a birthday a number of years ago. And before I moved out here full time, we would come out here for holidays, you know, cold times in December and uh, set up the telescope and people just love to look through it. Um, one of the things that I've observed uh, over the many years that I've visited this area is the sky used to be a lot darker. There used to be a lot less light pollution. Um, and while it's still very dark out here and you can see the Milky Way uh, and lots of stars, um, it's not as great as it used to be. And one of the things we're trying to do in what we're talking about here is to preserve that for right. what people live out here for and what visitors uh, from around the world come here for to appreciate that. Right, absolutely. And we'll talk a bit more about that after our station break. And, and just to say that um, my daughter, you know, grew up in an urban urban area out of uh, El Sereno, as actually born in East, East LA. And then she went to the planetarium in Griffith Park and saw the the night sky in the planetarium. She just could not believe it because she had never seen anything like that. Me growing up in my small village in Barbados, I had seen a lot of stars in, in the night sky. And that's really what uh, in, gave, gave me an incentive to come out to the desert because I thought, hey, I better get this child out somewhere where she could see the, the night sky. And so proud of her now, her, her book, she's a, a particle physicist in her book, The Disordered Cosmos, she makes the case that every child has the right to see the night sky. And I just love that. But on that note, we're going to take a, a short station break. When we return, we'll continue with our guests, um, biologists uh, Pat Flanagan and Eric Hamburg, who is with the Stop Wonder in um group and we'll be talking more about that and uh, threats of development to the desert. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
And that song for Station Break was Truth to Power and um, really connected to what we're talking about uh, today, which is the really desert preservation, but also uh, preservation uh, generally needed uh, for our planet uh, right now. And that song was by One Republic. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. If you've missed any part of this hour from 10 this morning for 90 days after that, just go to kpfk.org, scroll down to archives, click on Sojourner Truth. You'll be able to hear the show in its entirety. And if you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us there. Our handle on Instagram and Twitter at So True Radio. You can also check out our website at so true radio.org. And we are heard nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. Uh, first, I will have to say that you are listening now to KPFK 90.7 FM. And I'd also like to welcome all of the Pacifica uh, station listeners from our flagship stations and affiliate stations across the country. We're always happy to have you. And today, um, given our SoundCloud, I'd like to give a shout out in the United States to our SoundCloud listeners who are desert dwellers, desert dwellers um, throughout uh, California. We'd like to give you a shout out. And internationally, we would like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in South Africa. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. And we are having a special um, connected to the crisis that we're facing with the environment. But specifically, we're focusing on the role that the deserts in California play to the ecological balance, not only in California, but to the planet, and also the threats uh, facing those uh, deserts. And our guests are Pat Flanagan, who is a naturalist educator based in 29 Palms. She's a biologist. Also, Eric Hamburg, uh, who is with the Stop Wonder in group. He has um, owned a home in that area, in a very small rural area in San Bernardino County for 22 years, and he's lived there full time for the past eight years. Uh, what I'd like to do now is to go to a clip before we bring our guests back in um, from the <clears throat> Wildlands Conservancy on Saving the Desert. Can we do that clip now? All righty. So, Eric, I'd now like to actually start this discussion with you. Um, I mentioned how you have lived here full time for the, um, the past eight years, how you were an amateur astrologer and how you're drawn to the night sky. But tell us some of the other reasons that you and likely a lot of people who live in the area where you are in Wonder Valley come to this area. And just a small correction, I'm not an astrologer, but an astronomer. Astronomer, um, thank you. Thank you, Eric. Oh. That's fine. That's that's fine. Living here, and the, the reason that a lot of people are out here is for the uh, quiet environment, the clean air, the dark skies, um, the ability to be independent and just enjoy the wide open spaces. Uh, Wonder Valley itself is about 150 square miles and 
it's only sparsely populated with about 150 people, a, a, a thousand people in that 150 square miles. Um, the homes here are uh, largely cabins that uh, have been built over the years. Uh, it was encouraged uh, for health reasons for veterans of World War I uh, to move out here. And then in 1938, the federal government passed what's called the Small Tracts Act, which allowed people who wanted to homestead out here to acquire five-acre parcels and build uh, small cabins. Over the years, uh, people have improved those cabins, um, and lots of people live out here uh, that uh, just enjoy the peace and quiet and the wide open spaces. Yeah, About, and... Uh, mm -hmm. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, you you can finish your thought, but um, Pat, just bringing you in uh, to this discussion briefly because um, Eric mentions people coming here, you know, for the quiet, the wide open space, etc., and also the the historic cabins that were here. But Pat, this area initially um, was, of course, the, the land is occupied land. I mean, this is. Um, Native American territory, clearly. Um, but a lot of uh, people also came out here for health reasons, and that's of particular interest to me. Pat, tell us about the history of that. Well, I think as Eric started out, it um, initially when soldiers got back from World War One and they had the uh, lung diseases, they were advised to come out into this section of the desert, which they had to come this far out because the only water available was on the oasis of Mara. So you came out here and then after a while, if you could, you might dig a well, but uh, the air was clean. You could breathe it. You could take a deep breath. And that's because it was all intact. Everything was quiet. Yeah, And Eric can just really speak to this too. We hear that when the wind blows the desert air blows that's not true not unless if it's been disturbed yes but if it hasn't been disturbed when the wind blows the desert is just sitting there looking at you because it has a nice little topping on it that keeps it stable and so for those of people who need to have clean air without the small particles that can get into your bloodstream and your heart this is a place to come yeah, and and so Eric, you know, back to you. Um, there there are people um, who are artists, love the light out here. So a lot of artists are drawn to this area, but also people who have health issues, right? Asthma, respiratory, um, heart related uh, issues who come out uh, to the desert uh, precisely for the, you know, for the health benefits. And also, there's a high level of poverty. Um, in the area as well. Some people come out uh, to the area simply because that's also where they could afford to live. So Eric, there are a lot of reasons why this community uh, developed. And tell us now about the group um, Stop Wonder Inn and why that group formed. What What's going on? I, I described it in the intro as kind of a, a David and Goliath battle going on of a small rural community up against some deep pocket developers. Eric. Sure. So as I mentioned, uh, the 150 square miles of Wonder Valley is uh, 
very sparsely populated. Um, I live uh, in an area where the closest uh, neighbor to me is, you know, a quarter of a mile or more. Um, but there is uh, at a intersection about a mile and a half from me, uh, an old building that uh, the locals called the Pink Building. Uh, it was built in the early 60s by a cooperative electrical uh, organization to bring electrification to this area. Um, it was later acquired by Southern California Edison, uh, but Edison only operated it until 1980. So since then, it, it has been vacant except for some uh, use for uh, growing jojoba beans and whatever. Uh, and at the end of 2021, we saw some activity around this pink building, some markers being put up. And I started looking into it and saw that uh, some developers had bought about 160 acres around that building and applied for a permit to the county to build a 106-room hotel and resort with a, a wellness center, a restaurant, and other amenities for the guests. Um, that concerned me, and I started talking to people in the community uh, about this because it would be totally unlike anything that there is out here and would be the largest uh, hotel resort, in fact, in the entire Morongo Basin area. So... We started meeting um, and discussing this. We put up a website, uh, which you can find at stopwonderin.org, to start uh, informing the community about this and giving them tools to learn about it and express their opposition to the county about it. From that, uh, over a year or so, we finally received a what what is called an initial study from the county that evaluated all of the California Environmental uh, Act uh, factors um, that this project would impact. And the county determined that there would be less than significant impact uh, on the desert and the residents. Um, so we disagree with that. We created an outreach uh, campaign to allow people to comment on this to the county. And we uh, see that uh, the county received uh, about 400 um, letters uh, in opposition to this, uh, justifying the opposition uh, on a st substantive basis, fact-based basis, uh, according to CEQA. Um, then sub subsequently, a couple weeks ago, the county re released what would be their final staff report. Our comments from the community uh, didn't seem to be listened to, and the county is continuing to recommend that uh, this project go forward. We now have the opportunity this Thursday 
to go in front of the County Planning Commission and make our public comments directly to the commissioners. And hopefully we can um, convince them that either this project shouldn't go forward, which we strongly feel, or that at a minimum, a full environmental impact report be performed to fully examine all of the environmental factors that we feel were not explored uh, correctly in the county's report. Right. Thank you for that, Eric. And <clears throat> just to be um, to be clear about it, I am a strong supporter of this Stop Wonder in <laughs> a project. So I'm very familiar, of course, then with the activity and the work uh, going on. But <clears throat> Pat Flanagan, given what we talked in the first part of the, the hour about the desert, the importance of the desert uh, to the environment, um, the points that Eric makes uh, clearly, uh, you know, it seems that overwhelmingly the residents in the community are saying no to this massive hotel project, right? Uh, but the county, who knows what they will decide at the end of the day. But in addition to it being out of place in terms of the size of, of, of the building and the nature of the, the community, what about the impact on things like the desert tortoise, um, a wildlife corridor, dark skies? You know, just give us your thoughts on that, Pat Flanagan. Well, I know for myself, when I went to the initial meeting that was way last May, I think that the developers called for the community. Um, they, they talked about this wonderful place. And I thought, well, what about the desert tortoise? So. Um, I called Ed LaRue, who is Circle Mountain Biological Consultants, and asked if he had any uh, data on tortoise out in the Wonder Valley area. Ed LaRue uh, is a biologist who's very concerned about tortoise, and he has does not sign non-disclosure agreements. If he finds something, anybody can know about it, and he's released his data before. What I got was a survey, a focused survey, uh, on 40 acres of what is the Wonder Inn project site. And he did find tortoise and he found tortoise dying. He found a tortoise burrow. And uh, none of that has been found by the biology that is being done by the developers. So um, that's a major concern. And they also said in the, in the material that's been released uh, by the county that it was not in what's called a um, wildlife corridor. And interestingly enough, it's not in a federal wildlife corridor, but it is in a state wildlife corridor. And the tortoise is threatened um, in the state. So that's, you know, it's important. It's in what's called um, terrestrial significant habitat. Connectivity rank is number three, connections with implementation flexibility. And we have uh, actually, gotten from people all around the area pictures and geolocations of tortoise that they've seen in their yard. And so we've mapped those and uh, of which so far the county does not uh, really want to pay any attention to. Um, the Ed LaRue's focus study, even though it was initially started by the owner of the inn, uh, was not provided to the county. So I did the providing. I brought it to the county's attention, shifted it and emailed it to them. 
And um, Ed LaRue commented that there's every reason to believe those signs are still there. So there's lots of problems between these um, two uh, focus, one of them I don't think is too focused survey. But when you look at all the animals out there, light and dark is really important because animals have evolved over gazillions of years that they, in the desert, they hide out during the day and they hunt around at night. Well, all those little creatures with the long tails and the short legs, like the mice and the lizards, et cetera, they do this at night to help themselves be protected from the predators. Well, when you've got light all the time, the protection is not so good. And so the whole lifestyle of animals has to change when you've got light that, that um, is really every it just doesn't get dark anymore that becomes a real problem for them and um even though you know you don't have to be endangered to be um threatened by certain circumstances such as light and the number of animals that are actually out there that you don't see because they spend their life underground during the day uh is much bigger than you thought yeah so yeah, yeah, we have to be concerned about them as well. But, you know, Pat, I, you know, I have a, a, a particular fondness, um, well, for all critters, but the, the desert tortoise, which I, it broke my heart when I read an LA Times article that they're actually, uh, a lot of people think they're going to be extinct in the not too distant future. And this, the area, um, Eric, because you did some mapping of where tortoise was found in this area. And I suspect, given what you found, I mean, some of that is up on the Stop Wonder Inn website, that this particular area, uh, including where they want to build this massive hotel, um, may likely is a breeding ground for the desert tortoise. But Eric, your thoughts on that and any other concerns that you have about this development? We, we've got uh, just about five minutes or so before we have to wrap up. Eric. Sure. Well, certainly uh, I have contacted my neighbors, gotten pictures and created a map that uh, Pat has utilized to show the location of the desert tortoise out here. And certainly the uh, fact that uh, the study that Pat talked about found live desert tortoises and signs of tortoises on the site is uh, true. And it seems that the county staff report doesn't really care about that. So that's what's to be said about that. Um, um, just two more points. One about we talked about my interest in astronomy and the dark sky. Uh, this 106 room hotel and all the other amenities about it will shed a lot of light and create an um, umbrella of light throughout Wonder Valley. And the county contends and, and the developers contend that they will comply with the dark sky ordinance that was passed over the past year or so by shielding lights and all of that. But we just find that that is untenable. I can see this pink building out my front window. And when it's nighttime, I will see the glow from it and it will impact the dark sky. Second of all, or maybe last of all, I just want to make sure that people realize that if this development is approved, which we really don't want it to be, um, 
this will open the door to other development projects in this area, and it will forever change what makes Wonder Valley unique. Um, the county has a countywide plan with land use principles and policies that say that um, any development should preserve the character and historical nature of the desert areas. Um, I don't think they're applying those policies to this project and uh, not to beat a dead horse here, but we really think that this sh project should not be approved. Right. Thank you for that, um, Eric. And an important hearing coming up this Thursday at nine o'clock in the morning at the um, San Bernardino County uh, building in Joshua Tree. So any of our listeners who are, happen to be in the area or live in the area, um, that's a place, Eric, I'm sure you would want to uh, let people uh, know about. And Eric, again, give the website where people could find out about this hearing, but also a lot more about this uh, project. What is the website, Eric? The website is stopwonderin.org. You can get all of that information, but you can also find links to the meeting, the agenda, the location. And uh, if you show up, we'd appreciate it. But you can also submit online comments during the meeting. You can view the meeting on a live stream and you can submit the online comments until the end of the meeting uh, takes place. Right. And that meeting Thursday, March um, 23rd. Uh, we are out of time. I can't believe how it has flown here. We're going to have to continue this because Eric and Pat, what we didn't get to was that the one of the owners of this um, hotel admitted to a local print media that there are plans to build over 20 luxury homes on land that they also bought, additional land that, that they bought. Uh, that's not being considered by the county on, on Thursday, but it is something that it's out that is out there. So I'm afraid we are going to have to leave it there. Uh, Pat Flanagan, uh, Eric Hamburg, thank you so very much for joining us and thank you so much for the work that you do. And today's show produced by me, that's Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank our assistant producer, Jose Benavides. I'd like to thank the board op uh, for today. If you'd like a copy of today's show, please contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230. Go online to pacificaradioarchives.org. Uh, stay tuned for more programming at your local station. Sojourner Truth will be back on the air tomorrow. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott, and please remember to stay well and safe.